Welcome, I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I'm your host, Lori Lee Binstock. Everyone has an opportunity to ask our guest questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I will get try to get to your questions, but I do ask that everyone be respectful. Today's guest is Gerilyn Ritter, a recognized expert in healthcare policy. Gerilyn is executive vice president at Organon, a new Fortune 500 healthcare company dedicated to the health of women. She is also the author of a memoir about her recovery from the 2015 Amtrak derailment, Bone by Bone, a memoir of trauma and healing. Gerilyn, thank you so much for joining me today. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you, Lorley. Thank you. Well, on May 12, 2015, an Amtrak Northeast Regional train from D.C. bound for New York derailed, killing eight and injuring 211 critically. You know, this is a train that I've, I take frequently. I live in Washington, D.C., and that is exactly my route, my way of getting to D.C., um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, Gerald, you were one of the critical ones. What do you remember from that accident? I remember the moments before the accident. I don't remember being injured and and I was unconscious for days afterward. It was such an ordinary day, Lorley. That's what always strikes me. I'd taken that train, just as you said, at least a hundred times down to D.C., back to my home in the Northeast. And I I just knew the route like the back of my hand. And I remember as we pulled out of Philadelphia, I sat down in my seat. I texted my husband, you know, leaving Philly, home soon. We We were chatting back and forth on text. And then I stood up to get something out of my bag, something to read before my stop. And I kind of stumbled in the aisle. And, and I noticed we seemed to be going faster than we usually did right when we pulled out of the station. And then the train started rocking, and, and I was holding on to the luggage rack above my head to keep my balance, and I was annoyed because I, I couldn't let go to reach into my bag to get, to get what I'd wanted to get out. And then I started feeling like we were tipping over. And, mm-hmm. and it happened so fast, of course, but I remember thinking very clearly, we can't be tipping. Uh, you know that the trains don't tip, right? <laughs> and as as I started to fall forward, still holding onto the luggage rack above my head, I realized we were, and and I screamed, and I heard my own scream, and that's the last thing I remember. Wow! Uh, somebody found me. Uh, I know that I was found quickly from the timestamp on my medical records. Mm. Uh, I was brought to a local hospital where they quickly realized I needed a higher level of care. The surgeon told my family that they needed to come quickly because I was unlikely Mm. to last very long. And the thing is, one thing that really haunts me uh, is the idea that, that during that long night when they did not 
think that I was necessarily going to survive. I was in a marathon surgery. I'd been transported by helicopter. My family didn't know where I was, and I was a Jane Doe. And that does bother me. My my sons uh, were calling around to hospitals. They were just 15, 12, and 8 at the time. I'm looking for my mom. You know, her name is Geraldine Ritter. And as the night wore on, the hospitals had identified all of their patients. And, and the texts between my oldest son and my husband that night are, are really tough for me to read. Dad, find mom. Dad, have you found her? Dad, mm. people are dead. You know, Dad, I need Oof. my mom. And, and my husband would, would go to the hospital. I'm looking for my wife, you know, medium height, brown hair. And I joked with him afterward. I said, you know, maybe I do need to get a tattoo, you know, something <laughs> that I'm, I'm never unidentified again. And he kind of gently joked and suggested that I, you know, with all the scars and the surgery I've had, um, I actually have plenty of tattoos now. <laughs> you know, you have to wow. laugh. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's so hard. That's so hard. Even ju- you just saying that about, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it's really hard to even see the, those texts. It is. It is. And, and, you know, I make that point because trauma really, yes, it happened to me, but it happens to the whole family. Mm-hmm. That was an incredibly traumatizing experience to be walking and driving around Philadelphia in the middle of the night, not knowing whether I was alive or dead. And, you know, then having to identify me. Um, and he, to be honest, my husband didn't recognize me. He, mm. he, uh, I was on a ventilator, so my, my mouth is covered. I'm in a big cervical collar, so your chin, everything is covered. I was immobilized and covered in surgical drapes that I needed so much surgery on my abdomen. They had just left it open, knowing they mm. would have to go back in the next day. So he said, you know, really, all I could see was your forehead. I said, that's okay, hon. I'm not a, you know, I had casts on my arms, and he identified me by my personal effects. And I was the last surviving patient to be identified. So he knew the next morning he'd, he'd been to every hospital in Philadelphia. If this wasn't me, that I was gone. You know, and even if I'd lost my phone, if I was okay, I would have found a way to, to contact him. And when they handed him the bag of the jewelry that they had cut off the patient, uh, he recognized a bracelet and a watch that he had given me as gifts. And that's how he knew it was me. Wow. You know, you wrote this book, um, Bone by Bone, which, by the way, 100% of the proceeds are going to trauma professionals, medicine, and survivors. Why did you decide to write the book? You know, it was such an extraordinary experience. And, And so much of it was negative, but there were really beautiful things, too. I spent two and a half years, I've had dozens of surgeries, two and a half years on full disability, but I have recovered. I, I walk, I work full time at a senior level of a, of a public company, and there are just so many lessons and learnings along the way. And eight people died. You know, I don't believe when people say, oh, God had a plan for you. I don't really believe that because I believe he had a plan for those others as well. But I do believe I was given a gift. You know, it was grace, which we define as an undeserved, unmerited gift. 
and I was given a gift of survival. And if you're given a gift that big, I felt like you almost have an obligation. Not that my story is typical or everyone can learn from me, but if anyone reads it and they pick up some nugget, something that helps them, then, then at least something good has come out of this accident, which was so awful. Something good has come out of those years of pain if, if, if somehow this helps somebody else out there. Because not too many people, luckily, have been in train wrecks, but we all have something, right? Everybody, nobody walks through life unscathed. And whether it's a medical issue or a relationship that doesn't survive or a major personal setback, we all need to, at times, figure out how we move forward. And I was faced with that choice really starkly. How do I move forward? Can I move forward? And what does my life look like going forward? Wow. It takes a, an incredible human being to be able to find gratitude in, in something that was a really difficult experience. And I think, I think that's kind of the key whenever we, everyone experiences, like you said, no one goes through um, life unscathed, but it's finding those, you know, practicing gratitude for what I, what have I learned? What can I do with what has happened to me? I think that that's incredibly beautiful. Well, thank Um, you. And it helps me feel better about those years you know, otherwise it's just such a dark, sad time in my life and, and with my family. But the idea that we're trying to do something positive with it, you know, helps helps me feel like, okay, that wasn't just all a total waste. Mm. <laughs> and and yeah. it was. I would never wish, I don't like to think of it as a silver lining. Yes, it has given me a different perspective, but you know, it, it was it was absolutely a, a catastrophe, and, and I still, I do take the train, but mm-hmm. I know in my bones when we go past that curve, it's the sharpest curve on the Northeast Corridor, and I know when we're there, and I always bow my head, and mm-hmm. I just say a little prayer for the folks that were lost, because I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be on the train again, and too many people are not. Wow. You, you did say, you know, uh, we, we talked about 100% of the proceeds are going to trauma professionals, medicine, and survivors. Um, why did you make that decision? You know, I worried when I decided to write the book that somehow it would seem self-congratulatory. And I've written, I've read some wonderful trauma memoirs and, and other kinds of memoirs, but I didn't want it to seem like, hey, look at me, I'm so strong, look what I survived, you know? Right. <laughs> because, you know, there's an element of it that's, that's, that's good luck, that's good fortune, that's all the support of others and the wonderful medical care I had. And I certainly did not want there to be any impression that, you know, this book was about exploiting, you know, what happened to me or the accident. And I thought, you know, I'm writing this book in hopes that some of the things I had to go through and that some of the things that worked for me and didn't work for me can help other people that are struggling. And maybe it can also help further, you know, if I donate the proceeds to organizations that support trauma survivors. So this year, my support um, at the end of the year, whatever has come in from the book, 
is going to go to the American Trauma Society and the Trauma Survivors Network, which runs kind of peer counseling programs for trauma survivors. And to me, that's one more way that hopefully some good can come out of this awful situation. Wow. Doctors did call your recovery miraculous. What was recovery like? Painful. (laughs) Painful. (laughs) In a word. You know, and, and the thing is, it was so up and down. I'm a very ambitious person. I've got a couple of graduate degrees. For most of my life, my career, you could just work harder and press through, you know, the obstacles that came up. And this was really the first time when I came up against something that I had absolutely no control over, absolutely none. You know, I went in, a, in an instant, in 24 hours, from someone who, in the year before the accident, I'd been in Botswana, I'd been in Ethiopia, I'd walked through doing some of the charitable work my company had done, you know, slums in Uganda, in Delhi. I'd attended board meetings in Tokyo and and Brussels. And then I couldn't get out of bed to go to the bathroom by myself. I didn't drive for a year and a half because I was on too much pain medication. I was in and out of the hospital, hardware in, hardware out, then another surgery to reconstruct this or that. And, you know, that that sense of independence, of agency, of control over your life and your future, that was really hard. And that's what hit me. You know, we the, the PTSD, the depression that set in, because mm-hmm. I think the, the psychological, the mental health aspects of trauma are something I appreciate much more now than I did. <laughs> yeah, and then, I was going to you know, ask. Some of those things set in later. You know, we, we tend to focus on the immediate aftermath. And I was in the hospital for quite a while. I had about six surgeries within the first 10 days. Um, And I was on a ventilator for quite a while. But once it became clear that I was going to survive and and the doctors could not believe that my brain didn't swell, that I didn't have a major head injury. One One of my trauma surgeons told me, he said, I have no medical explanation for how your body absorbed that much force to do what it did to your bones, your pelvis, your organs. And I can't explain why you don't have a brain injury. And I mean, that was so striking to me. And we were just so grateful. I'd broken four vertebra, you know, destroyed my my, my pelvis and oh. I wasn't paralyzed. So in the beginning, we were actually on a high. I was immobilized in the ICU. I couldn't speak because of the ventilator. But with my cast, I could point to letters on a, on a letter board and communicate with my family. And we were really just so grateful because I was alive. And it, it, it seemed like I would recover in some fashion. But it was a couple months later when I went home, still in the wheelchair, you know, still in my cervical collar, still on a tremendous, unimaginably high doses of fentanyl, oxycontin, oxycodone, all at the same time, just so I could breathe because my rib cage was crushed. Um, That's when you realize, wow, I'm back in my house, but I can't even go upstairs to my bedroom. I lived on the first floor for two years. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I can't go to the bathroom. I can't get out of bed. I can't even roll over to pick up my bottle of pills. You know, superficially, you're in the same place. You're the same person, but nothing is the same. Right. And that's when I really started to struggle. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you- like, the false hopes, one of my biggest mm-hmm. lessons coming out of this is the importance of you have to be optimistic, right? You have to think, I'm going to get through this. But I learned it was equally as important to be realistic. Because in the beginning, we were so grateful. I was calling my boss, you know, once I was out of the hospital, telling him I'd be back by the end of the summer. You know, just needed another six weeks for some of the bones to heal. (laughs) I called him every other month for two years. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, yes. Quite a while for me to actually realize and accept that I didn't have control over this timetable. I could work as hard as I wanted in physical therapy, but it was going to be much longer than I ever thought it would be. And that was the hard part to accept. Yes, stay optimistic. Yes, you'll make it through. But you kind of set yourself up for failure when you say, hey, it'll just be another month or so. Mm. No, you know, I, I needed to accept that hard reality. It was not going to be another month or so. It was going to be another year or so. Wow. And so you were in physical therapy. Did you have to go through any type of um, like talk therapy, like trauma therapy? um, I did seek it out. You did? Okay. I did. Not initially because I just, you know, I probably have some of the same biases that, that too many other people have had around mental health. And I just thought PTSD didn't apply to me. This was an accident. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a combat veteran. I wasn't a victim of a crime or intentional violence or or domestic violence. It was just an accident. You know, and I pride myself on being very rational. And I remember in one of my follow-up appointments with the trauma surgeon that had taken me off the helicopter that night, it, it was like the sixth appointment in a long day of follow-ups, and I'd seen every ologist there was. <laughs> and I saw her at the end of the day. I was exhausted, and she said, how are you doing? And I started going through my list of symptoms. Well, this hurts. It still is this. That. And she said, no, no, no. How are you doing? And I looked at her, and I just started to cry. I, mm. no, nobody, you know, I, I'd come to think of myself as a collection of broken body parts. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, yeah. I, doing? I have no idea. <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> and, and she said, you know, I recommend that all my trauma patients get, you know, get counseling for PTSD. And I started kind of arguing with her, t- telling her those things. Well, you know, this was just an accident. And she kind of heard me out and she said, just keep it in mind. And as the weeks wore on and I was still in so much pain and it was not you know, my recovery wasn't proceeding according to the crazy time frame that I had set for myself. You know, I'm snapping at my kids. I'm irritable with my husband, you know, and <laughs> when you're mad at everybody else, you kind of realize, okay, it's you. <laughs> so I finally did, you know, reach out and, 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 and find a therapist that had some experience counseling trauma victims. And it was helpful it's not something I did for years, but but for a period of time, helping me understand how the body and the mind react to trauma. It's not just a bunch of broken bones. When your nervous system mm. is so overloaded and so bombarded 
you know, by chronic pain, acute pain, and, and your life turned upside down, you know, that there, there are really biochemical changes in the brain. <laughs> and, yes. and it helped me to understand there's a reason I was crying all the time. It wasn't that I was just wallowing or being weak. There was a reason. And, and that helped me give myself a little break. And I needed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to ask, um, you know, you, you show so much gratitude now for the experience. And I was going to ask during the recovery period, you know, how is that affecting you? And like you were saying, you're snapping and getting e easily agitated by, by right. family. Um, I that's definitely a sign of PTSD. Um, um, cause yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I do that too. I do that too. And I'm like, Oh, well, I need to kind of regroup and, and, and really take a good look at what's going on with me. Um, yeah. and you know, gosh, I cannot believe the, the recovery that you, how long was recovery? You know, I think I will always be recovering from this. Um, you know, on, on the outside, I, I live what might look like a very normal life, but I just had another major surgery in August. Um, and, and uh, you know, unfortunately, lots of surgery begets more surgery when you have scar tissue and complications and those sorts mm. of things. So, <clears throat> you know, I was, I was full-time not working for two years and three months, and then I went back part-time. And, and that was an interesting struggle to go back to my job after that long, you know, when I was still suffering the fatigue, um, the insomnia, some of the things that, that come with trauma. It was, it was really interesting. But, you know, you just, at that point, I had gotten to a better place of acceptance. And I remember sitting in a meeting in a big conference room, and I would just feel this wave of sleep come over me, and I couldn't control it. And it happened a fair amount. And I thought, you know, I'm standing up, I'm blinking, I'm trying to drink cold water. I thought, no, I am, I'm going to face plant in this meeting. <laughs> so I picked up my phone. I pretended I had just gotten a very important call. You know, you, when you kind of pantomime <laughs> and you hold the phone to your ear and you, you know, you wave to your <laughs> colleagues and walk out the door. So I, I, I walked out the door. I went to my office. I closed the door. I set my alarm for 20 minutes and I curled up under my desk and I took a nap. <laughs> Uh, well, good for you. Your body was telling you to do that. Exactly. You know, that I, I, the alarm went off. I went back into the meeting having finished my very important call. And, and <laughs> finally, I had to fess up and my company kindly put a couch in my office for my naps. Oh, that's, I was you going know? to ask, how, how yeah. was it going back? And, and you know, how were well, they? It was they... tough because you want to be, I'm back. I'm strong. You can have confidence in me. You can rely on me, right? Mm -hmm. And... I, I had a senior level job. I, I needed people to have confidence that that they could, you know, that I, that I had this. <laughs> right. And then I thought, you know, somebody's going to walk into my office and see my legs sticking out from under my desk and think I've keeled over. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to come clean and say, look, every now and then the pain or the fatigue kind of hits me, and I need to I need to sit back. And and you know, they put a couch in my office, and I found being open about that. It, people understood it was fine, and in fact, people would walk into my office and say, "Man, you got a couch," and I'd say, "Yeah, you get hit by a train, you get a couch. It's awesome." <laughs> you also have an amazing <laughs> sense of humor. <laughs> well, you, know, you, you have to find it every now and then, and 
But even before I went back to work, you know, very gradually, and, and goodness, this took a long time, but it had probably been nine, 10 months. And I, I was really struggling with withdrawing off the opioids, not psychologically. I never had the cravings, thank goodness, for the drugs. But your body becomes accustomed to it. And, and I'd been on such high doses for six, seven, eight months that oh, wow. on top of the pain, I it was talk about insult to injury. I, you know, had the shakes and the nausea and the chills, you know, from the withdrawal and and the weaning process I had to go through. And, you know, once again, I hit a really low place. And my sons came in the door after school one day, and it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I've worked their whole lives, you know, took a maternity leave when they were born and went back to work full time. And I thought, you know what? I have never been here when they got home from home, home from school every day, you know, for a week, for two weeks, for three weeks. And it kind of hit me that maybe I was wasting some of this time not leaning into things that I could do as opposed to focusing on the things that I couldn't do. Wow. And, and they walked in the door and I thought, you know what? At least for a while, I can be that mom that's here every day, hearing about their day in the moment rather than four or five hours later, you know, over a late dinner. And so trying to find things like that, you know, and, and make myself appreciate them actually really helped. But I can't say it comes naturally. I mean, I, I had to really try to say, okay, what can I do with this time? And spending time with my kids, I studied trauma. I tried to become a student of trauma. I read every book I could find <laughs> to mm -hmm. understand why I felt like I did and what pain does to the body. And, and those were proactive things that I could do. I started getting more involved in, in, in my church. Uh, I was asked to give a continuing medical education talk at the hospital where I was saved, talking about the patient perspective. And, and the head of trauma at that, at that hospital said to me, he said, Gerilyn, we haven't had a resource like you because we almost never see anyone as injured as you were that remembers the journey because they always have a head injury. He said, mm -hmm. somehow you didn't, and you can give us feedback, you know, on the care that you received. So looking for, you know, it's different for everyone. Those things were meaningful to me and, mm -hmm. and helped me feel like all this time sitting at home recovering could be useful time, could be valuable time, but I had to take the initiative and make it that way. <laughs> right. Wow. There was a reason why you didn't experience a head injury. That that was that's very important for them to get the feedback that they did from you. It was. And and it made me proud. I mean, I work in healthcare policy. So this is something that I, you know, I have some insight into how the healthcare system worked. And I received fantastic leading care that, that saved my life, and, and it's the reason I can walk now um, and, and breathe without pain. But, you know, nothing's perfect, right? We can always get better. And, and when you have, they call it polytrauma, as you probably know, when so many different bodily systems, my lungs, my digestive system, my bladder, you know, my nervous system, there were so many injuries, you know, how it all fits together. And, and there's no one person, there's no one doctor that can tell you your prognosis. They can tell you for their area of specialty, right? Right, right. <laughs> but there's there's no roadmap, and and so, you know, helping my 
healthcare providers kind of understand what I needed and and that coordination of care that was really important. I said, you know, I'm an educated lawyer and healthcare professional, and I can't keep track of all the things that are wrong with me. <laughs> you know, I can't keep track. I, I work in the pharma industry, and I can't keep track of all the pills I'm supposed to take. I thought, oh my it's goodness, yeah. people that don't have some of those advantages or that do have difficulty with memory, it's really hard. It's, and I would have never appreciated how hard it is and, and the importance of, of caregivers, um, just absolutely central to my recovery. Wow. I know you talked about some things, some changes, perspectives. What were other perspectives and priorities that you felt changed afterwards, after your recovery? You know, I thought in the beginning, I just kept talking about going back to work. And I think I've thought about why that was. It's not like I lived and died for my work. I was very into my career. I worked hard. But I thought about why that was. And I think it represented normality. I I think, you know, just the normalcy of this is what I'd done before. If I get back to work, things will be normal again. And and that wasn't conscious, but I think that's why I was so fixated on, on it early on. But as the years passed, you know, and I, I did accept to an extent I never had before, the the, the beauty of slowness. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> built to go slow. I didn't. And, but I thought, you know, I, I, I did learn to appreciate that that slowness in my life and what it, the things that it let me do with, with my kids and, and to think about and have time to do. So then when I decided to go back, you know, I had friends that said to me, why are you doing this? After what you've been through, and I was I was fortunate, I didn't absolutely have to go back to this job to feed my family. So why are you doing this? And, and it made me stop and think, why am, why am I doing this? <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know? And, you know, I, I, I really, I, I've joked, I, I work in healthcare, and I came to the conclusion that I believed in what I did. I believed I could have an impact. I thought it was important and, you know, at least as important as as other things I could do, go to volunteer or do these other kinds of things. I said, you know, I can get more engaged in nonprofit work. I can volunteer but still hold my job that I really value. I think I also had something to prove to myself. I said, you know, if I retire, it's not going to be because Amtrak made me retire. I guess I'm stubborn like that, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, I wanted to go back. I wanted to prove I could, I think to myself, not to anybody else. But fundamentally, I also believed in, I believed in what we did. And, and I, I've always joked with, with all due respect to furniture manufacturers that maybe if I worked for a chair company, I might have said, you know, the world's got enough chairs. <laughs> and, and I might have gone to do something different. But I said, you know, no, there's, there's a lot that needs to change to have better health care for folks in this country and around the world. So, but, but I also promised myself that the day I got caught up with, I don't know, office politics or started obsessing about an email would be the day I made myself quit, that, that I was mm. given this gift at a, as a second chance and I was not given it so that I could obsess, you know, about office politics. And so I, I really do try to hold myself accountable. Nobody loves their job every single day. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but I've sort of said if I if I get to that place where this doesn't feel meaningful, this doesn't feel like I'm having an impact 
or I could be having a bigger impact doing something else, then I've promised myself that's the day I quit. Wow. Well, the- so it helps you keep things in perspective. You know, I, I mm-hmm. every now and then I stumble, but I really try not to sweat the small stuff. You know, I, it's it is a different perspective than I had beforehand. Well, that's beautiful. That is, I mean, not sweating the small stuff that takes a lot. And I, I guess it took this this accident, but I mean, again, like you've 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 taken this accident, you've created this memoir, this that you know proceeds go to to help trauma professionals you know and survivors i i think that what you're doing is thank um, you there you know there were legal issues with i guess the engineer the driver of the amtrak train were you were you following the the trial and you know how did that make you feel you know i i followed it distantly i had no desire um and i told folks that to testify or be part of it. Mm. Um, Technically, according to the National Transportation Safety Board official report of the accident, I was the most injured survivor, well, the the most injured passenger who survived and Mm. didn't perish. And so I, you know, was contacted. But, and and for folks that aren't aware, uh, Amtrak publicly admitted this is not confidential, that, that they were responsible for the accident. The engineer was going 106 mm-hmm. on a curve that was designed for a maximum of 50. And he was not on drugs. He was not on his cell phone. Um, again, all public information. Mm-hmm. He the, the official investigation conclusion was he lost situational awareness. He just forgot where he was. You know, he, he got distracted. Mm. And I understand that because we're all human. It is, f- but it it's still hard, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is very hard to accept. And it, I channeled my energy, though, into the importance of having backup systems because humans are human. Yes. <laughs> and there is a technology out there that, that tracks the speed of a train you know, we have self-driving cars, for goodness sakes. You know? Right. <laughs> and and there, there is a technology that had been deployed, but not on that curve, that would recognize when a train's going too fast and automatically apply the brakes. So now, now they have deployed that technology, but not at the time. So that's been where my focus is, rather than focusing on one individual mm-hmm. and, and whether that, you know, what, what do I get out of that man going to jail? It doesn't change my life one bit. I don't feel the need for revenge. It, it was an accident. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think might have been hard for some folks to accept. My husband had a lot of anger. Mm. I just felt sad. I did not feel angry. I just felt sad because it's a tragedy that shouldn't have happened. You're right. Absolutely. Uh, do you stay in con? Do you, do you um, communicate with any of the other survivors from the, the train? Um, not too many, um, but I, I have, and my book tells the story, a, a number of survivors, you know, spoke with the press or have told their stories in different ways. And so I've tried to capture what they already chose to make public. And, and I did become close. I have become close with, with one survivor who coincidentally was also in the first car, was also very severely injured. You know, it was a, a friend of a friend type of situation, a, a, 
colleague I didn't actually know very well at work happened to be at a conference right when I had gone back to work and happened to sit next to a guy who'd been in the same train accident and had just come back to work himself and they struck <laughs> up a conversation. So so sort of serendipity, but that was a really valuable experience. And it's it's one of the things I hope that by telling my story, you know, trauma is lonely. No matter how many people you have around you that love you, that want to understand, that want to help you, they can't. I mean, they can do certain things to help you, but they can't understand. Mm-hmm. And and it's impossible. I don't blame them. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but 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 somebody who who has experienced it, whose life was turned upside down in an instant, the same way mine was. Um we really had an instant connection, and I drew a lot of strength from that feeling that I wasn't alone. Yeah, and and that's you know it's 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 one of the reasons I I wrote the book, but I also um, really encourage folks to to have been some, through something like this by sharing your story. You you find support you might not have known existed, and the the man's name I quoted I quote him. In my book, and I, I try to tell his story a bit. Um, his name was Michael Walsh, and and just a fantastic guy who has walked a similar path. Mm. Wow. Well, I'm I'm so grateful to have you on today. Is there anything you'd like to add? You know, I I uh, I talked about the importance of, of realistic optimism, and I talked about the importance of realism. And, and I, you know, when I, I kept missing my self-imposed deadlines to go back to work, and, and that was hard. But, but that optimism, that fundamental belief that it will get better is so important. And I just encourage folks that are out there who are going through something, I know you know this, but where you are now isn't where you're necessarily going to be. You know, it, it, it doesn't happen quickly all too often. And and patience doesn't come easy to some of us. <laughs> <laughs> but over time and through all the ups and downs of recovery, you know, you're going to find yourself in a different place. And it can be much better than where you are now. And I needed that encouragement when I was in my darkest moments. And, and I hope folks can hang on to that hope. Uh, because it's very powerful. Wow. Well, thank you so much and for sharing your story, because you're right, there are people who have maybe not gone through exactly what you've gone through, but yes, their lives have changed in an instant from some sort of accident. And so I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you're able to share your story with me and on, on our, my program. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lorley. This has been fantastic. Great. Well, that was Gerilyn Ritter, author of Bone by Bone, a memoir of trauma and healing. For more info on Gerilyn, you can click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there on your screen, and that will send you to her book to purchase. You can also head over to my website, thetraumasurvivorthriver.com. And I hope you join us next week where we talk to uh, musician and author Michael Berry about how he manages his disassociative identity disorder. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Have a great day. Take care. <laughs>